One man we spoke to said that he lost three family members, but another family in his village had lost 21. Reports of more than 200 civilian deaths in Ethiopia. It is Monday, June 20th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, what we know about the attack in Ethiopia's Oromia region with details of what happened still hard to verify. Also, the push in Galveston, Texas to transform into a focus of black tourism with the opening of Juneteenth historic exhibits. If you really want to be immersed in the story, you have to visit Galveston, Texas and the sites associated with the events of that day. And the Republican convention in Texas this past weekend, which saw the state party officially reject the results of the 2020 election. It's 401. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. European Union's foreign policy chief is calling Russia's blockade of Ukrainian food exports a war crime. And Pierce Peter Granitz reports. EU foreign policy chief Joseph Burrell says that Russia cannot use hunger as a weapon of war. He warned that the blockade is increasing the risk of famine, especially in Africa. Ukraine has more than 23 million tons of food exports stuck inside the country, and Burrell says that millions of people will not be able to eat it. He called it inconceivable that Russia was preventing people around the world from accessing food and blamed Russia's invasion for both food and energy scarcity and price spikes. Peter Granitz, NPR News, Kiev. Joseph Burrell spoke in Luxembourg amid word that Ukraine's biggest Black Sea port at Odessa came under a Russian missile attack today that destroyed a food warehouse. The Ukrainian military says 14 missiles were fired during a barrage that lasted three hours. Hearings examining the January 6th insurrection will resume on Capitol Hill tomorrow. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the hearing expected to focus on how then-President Donald Trump and his allies pressure key battleground states to overturn the 2020 election. Lawmakers on the panel will hear testimony from two top Republican election officials in Georgia. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger had a phone conversation with Trump in January of 2021. During that call, Trump pressured and at times berated Raffensperger, urging him to find the votes necessary for him to win the state. Lawmakers will also hear from Georgia Deputy Secretary of State Gabe Sterling. So far, the committee has laid out the case that Trump was repeatedly told that he had lost the election, but continued to push his false claims of widespread voter fraud. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Washington. President Biden says he is considering some relief at the pump, telling reporters today that he hopes to make a decision by the end of the week on whether to suspend the federal tax on gasoline. Suspending the tax could save consumers as much as 18 cents a gallon, but that would also mean taking money away from the nation's highways and transit programs. Pediatricians' offices across the nation preparing to offer COVID-19 vaccines to their youngest patients. Nearly 20 million babies, toddlers, preschoolers now eligible to get vaccinated. Here's NPR's Allison Aubrey. You know, it's going to take a while to get full protection from these vaccines. For the Pfizer vaccine, kids will be getting three shots that are spaced out. The first two shots are three, three weeks apart. Then a third shot is eight weeks later. Uh, I spoke to Dr. Ashish Jha. He's the Biden administration's COVID response coordinator. He says vaccinating this age group will take time, but there is an advantage to doing it as soon as possible. The vaccines for kids younger than five won approval from federal regulators over the weekend. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Riders on the red, blue, and orange lines are dealing with day one of weekday service cutbacks. The cuts are happening because of a shortage of subway dispatchers. It's one of a handful of safety issues flagged by the Federal Transit Administration. Jared Johnson with the advocacy group Transit Matters says the MBTA's offer of bonuses to fill dispatcher jobs is a great first step, but he adds the T may have a tough road ahead as it tries to hire. People looking for jobs have a lot more choice, a lot more options. So it's no longer sort of the old days where folks would just come to the T because when you have an agency that's careening from crisis to crisis and offering buyouts, that's not going to be the same sort of beacon that it used to be. Johnson says he hopes the T will partner with local community colleges to create pathways into the dispatcher ranks. Flights carrying hundreds of thousands of pounds of baby formula are expected to land in Boston this week. The the flights are arriving from London. The formula will be available both in stores and online. Flights are also bringing the formula to Detroit amid a national shortage in baby formula. Meantime, there appear to be some lingering problems at Logan for regular passengers. More than 100 flights coming into or out of Boston have been delayed. More than two dozen have been canceled. Airlines have attributed delays and cancellations from over the weekend to staffing issues and a spate of bad weather. State officials in New Hampshire are urging people going hiking to prepare themselves and check the weather before departing. A Massachusetts man died at a hospital this weekend after being rescued from a trail near Mount Washington. New Hampshire's Fish and Game Lieutenant Bob Mancini says rescue teams had to fight driving rain, blowing snow and wind gusts of up to 80 miles an hour to reach him. It does happen every year, and it happens uh, on the presidential range on Mount Washington every year. This is, has some of the world's worst weather. Uh, historically, has been known as a place that has some of the world's worst weather, so I, I wouldn't say it's a surprise. Another three hikers from Rhode Island were rescued in the White Mountains after becoming lost on the trail. In the forecast, it will be a mix of sunny clouds tonight, temperatures dropping to the lower 50s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 77 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. Hundreds of people are reported dead after an attack on civilians in a rural part of Ethiopia. The prime minister has called the attack unacceptable and said restoring peace and security is his government's priority. Ethiopia has been fighting a civil war since late 2020. NPR's Africa correspondent Ader Peralta is in the capital, Addis Ababa. Hi, Ader. Hey, Ari. What more can you tell us about this massacre? I've been able to talk to two witnesses on the phone, and what they tell us is that fighters for the Oromo Liberation Army had been amassing in this region called Gimbi. And on Saturday morning, they started rampaging through small villages. One man we spoke to said that he lost three family members, but another family in his village had lost 21. So his pain, he said, was insignificant. Another man, Ahmed Abdallah, uh, told us that he was farming, and when he heard gunfire... Uh, he came back to his village. He saw rebels going house to house. He says they were rounding up uh, the ethnic Amharas who had settled in this mostly Oromo region. Let's listen. They surrounded the village and they put the people 50 on one side, 30 on 26 on the other side. 
using a sniper, they had been executed though. He says in one mass grave, he helped bury 63 people, and out of those, 41 were kids under the age of 10. Um, the OLA, the rebels in this region, say that they did not do this. They say that civilians were killed by government soldiers who were dressed to look like rebels. Um, and we should note that I would be on my way to that village right now, but the government will not let me, so getting some ground truth on this is difficult. I guess the the big questionator is why. As we said, there has been a civil war raging for years, but this was a massacre of civilians, and it's not the first time this has happened. It's a lot of things. I mean, look, Ethiopia's longtime government collapsed in 2018, and since then we've seen government troops and armed groups in different parts of the country commit atrocities. Just this week, a video was circulated on social media that, according to the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, showed government troops and allied Amhara militias taking Oromo men off a truck and executing them on the side of the road. So the ethnic group that was attacked this weekend was attacking when that video was taken. Uh, the analyst I talked to say that what is happening in Ethiopia is that different groups, which are organized by ethnicity, have different dreams for what this country should look like, and no one has found a peaceful way to negotiate this. So instead, it's turned into unthinkable violence. The country has changed so quickly. Just a few years back, Ethiopia was relatively secure, economically prosperous. It was hailed as an African success story. Is the outlook right now as bleak as it seems from where we sit? I, I think it's pretty bleak. Uh, for more than a year and a half, you know, Ethiopia has been fighting a civil war in the northern part of the country. And just as a peace process for that started to take root, other insurgencies in the south and northwest seem to be heating up. And each one of those conflicts is complicated with deeply held historical grudges. So... It's hard to see any easy way out of this cycle of violence for Ethiopia. Zenpiar's Ada Peralta in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you, Ari. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is escalating his clash with the White House over unaccompanied migrant children who cross the southern border without their parents or guardians. This has been a growing focus for Republicans and right-wing media. They accuse the Biden administration of organizing secret migrant flights to communities around the country. But NPR's Joel Rose reports that rhetoric is often at odds with the facts. For years now, thousands of Central American children have crossed the U.S.-Mexico border alone. And the federal government has responded the same way, transporting them from the border to other parts of the country where they can be reunited with parents or placed in a network of shelters. This was normal, even routine, until suddenly it wasn't. The Biden administration has been secretly flying underage migrants to Florida and New York in the middle of the night. Pennsylvania is the latest state seeing an influx of ghost flights coming in the middle of the night. Fox News has devoted multiple segments to these so-called ghost flights. They don't want the American people to see what they're doing, which is interesting to me. What you just saw is illegal. That's a crime. That's why they're keeping it secret. To be clear, these flights are legal. In fact, the federal government is required to care for these children by law until they can be placed with a sponsor in the U.S., usually a parent or other relative. It's not secret and it's not new. Jennifer Nagda is with the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights, a nonprofit that works closely with unaccompanied children. She says the rules about their treatment have been the same for years. 
spelled out most recently in a law that passed with broad bipartisan support in 2008. This is part of a process established under a bipartisan law intended to treat children just a little bit more like the children that they are. By the time former President Trump was elected, Republicans argued that the law was having unintended consequences, that human smugglers and cartels have learned to exploit it to get more kids into the country. Still, the law was reauthorized during the Trump administration. What has changed is that the number of unaccompanied children crossing the border reached an all-time high last year. And Nagda says so has the amount of fear-mongering about them. It's really just divorced from reality and from facts. Federal officials say that flights carrying migrant children happen at all hours and that they don't release information about the children on board to protect their privacy. Biden officials say all of this was the same during the Trump administration. Even the contractor operating the charter flights hasn't changed. But none of that has silenced the president's critics. There's no warning. It's just in the middle of the night. That's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at a press conference last Friday, standing behind a podium with a sign that read Biden's border crisis. DeSantis signed a law that blocks the state from doing business with air or bus carriers that bring undocumented immigrants to Florida, including unaccompanied children. What this bill does is it penalizes any of these contractors that the federal government is hiring to dump illegal aliens in our state. And so they will be ineligible for any tax contracts or anything like that. When DeSantis was asked how many companies might be affected, he didn't offer an answer but conceded that it's, quote, difficult for the state to stop flights that are operated by federal contractors. Immigrant advocates suspect the real point of the law is to help DeSantis win re-election this fall and run for president in 2024. Jennifer Nagda says that leaves migrant children caught in the middle of a fight between Florida and the White House. It's really unconscionable to me that kids would be used as pawns in a political fight. There are no ghost flights, Nagda says, but the backlash is real. And she worries that the harm to migrant children could be, too. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. The House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol plans to hold two more hearings this week. So how are those hearings landing with voters? Ben Pavier from member station VPM takes us to a swing district in Virginia where primary voters go to the polls tomorrow. Kimberly Berryman is a strategic grocery shopper. Her budget is tight, and she goes to a few spots in Fredericksburg, Virginia, to find the best deal. Doing it all in one shot because, you know, of gas prices, you have to, you know, make the whole trip count. Berryman lives in the countryside, far enough out that she puts a cooler in her trunk to keep her corn cold. For Berryman, it's worlds away from the January 6th hearing going on at the Capitol. I got other things to do. (laughs) I really do. I mean, I really don't pay attention to a lot of it, like I said. Berryman says she usually votes for Democrats. That includes this swing district's current representative, Abigail Spanberger. Berryman says the January 6th attack was shocking, but she's more focused on rising bills and says Democrats aren't doing enough to fix it. I don't think so at all. (laughs) I'm really, like I said, I'm really disappointed because it's just so much that's going on. And then, you know, it's like they're sweeping things under the rug. Berryman says she'd consider voting for a Republican if they address her concerns. I asked Spanberger how she would respond to voters like Berryman, who believe Democrats are too focused on January 6th at the expense of the economy. I would say that certainly I'm not that Democrat. It's not that Spanberger is ignoring January 6th. She was in the House chamber during the assault on the Capitol. She remembers watching the scene unfold from the gallery. Capitol police officers barricading up the door with benches and tables. 
And Spanberger believes the hearings are important for the health of the U.S. democracy. And ensuring that something like we saw on January 6th um, doesn't ever occur in the future. But the two-term Democrat says the hearings haven't stopped her from focusing on pocketbook issues. She sponsored legislation designed to prevent baby formula shortages and another to recruit more truckers to address supply chain issues. And she'd prefer to keep the focus there rather than on the last president or even the current one. Spamberger won't say whether she wants President Biden to run again. I'm focused on November 22 uh, and continuing to serve my constituents. The six Republicans vying to take on Spamberger have worked to pin her to Biden. Yesley Vega, a sheriff's deputy running for the GOP nomination, railed against the president and Spamberger to a crowd of a couple dozen Republicans in a gated community outside Fredericksburg. Tell me one thing that they've done good, aside from electing and converting more Republicans. <laughs> what have they done? Despite the moderate lean of the district, Vega and her five GOP competitors are aligning themselves with Donald Trump. She says Democrats have squandered Trump's legacy. They were handed the most securest border, a thriving economy. Another Republican in the field, Bryce Reeves, has made Trump a focus of his ads. President Trump showed us how to stand up for the principles and values that make America great. I'm ready to finish what he started. Most of the GOP candidates in the district have downplayed the January 6th attack. Some voters at Vega's event, like Deanne Marshall, say the hearings aren't fair. They're not showing the whole story, and they have no opposition. There's no true Republicans on that forum. None of the GOP candidates will say whether they would have voted to certify the 2020 election. And the winner of this seat will be in the chamber after the next presidential election. For some Democratic voters in the district, like Courtney Du Bois, the January 6th hearings drive home the stakes. I believe it's important because everybody needs to know what's happening and what has happened and what we, the steps we can take to prevent this from happening again. But with so much else on voters' minds, Du Bois says she can only hope the hearings cut through the noise. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, the effort in Galveston, Texas, to mark and tell the history of Juneteenth. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Wicked, flying back to the Citizens Bank Opera House now through July 24th. Tickets are now available at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. In business news, Boston-based Bain and companies signing a deal to lease most of a long-planned Back Bay office building. The building's been in the planning stages for 15 years, and the agreement is one of the largest for office space in the area since before the pandemic sent many workers home. The deal will give Bain eight of the building's eventual nine stories in a 15-year lease once it's fully built in about three years. On Wall Street, markets were mostly higher today. The Dow was down 38 points at 29,888. The Nasdaq rose 152 points, though, to 10,798, and the S&P 500 gained 8 points. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. 
DirectTire.com. And just an update, the markets were closed today. That was Friday's markets numbers. Remember, tomorrow, Boston's youth discuss how gun control laws or lack thereof have impacted their educational experience and well-being. Free tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight, lows dropping to the mid-50s. Right now, 77 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Total Wine and More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Shoppers can explore over 8,000 wines, 2,500 beers, and 4,500 spirits. TotalWine.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. Today is the second observance of America's newest federal holiday, Juneteenth. We celebrate the day 157 years ago that a Union Army general came to the port city of Galveston in the District of Texas and posted an order to the citizenry including the words, All Slaves Are Free. That day was two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, an order that could not be enforced in the defiant South without Union troops. As NPR's John Burnett reports, today black Galvestonians are jubilant that the world is learning their story. A couple of months after Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse, Major General Gordon Granger sailed into Galveston to take command of all federal troops in the District of Texas. He came here to this spot in June of 1865. Galveston is the birthplace of Juneteenth. Here at the southwest corner of 22nd and Strand is where Gordon Granger set up his Union headquarters. Sam Collins is unofficial ambassador of Juneteenth tourism. As he explains, the edifice occupied by the Union Army is long gone. Now it's a parking lot bounded by ocean-themed gift shops, an Irish pub, and a store that sells toe rings. Two and a half years before Granger arrived, President Abraham Lincoln had issued his Emancipation Proclamation that legally freed three and a half million African Americans enslaved in Confederate states. But it was here that federal troops issued and enforced General Order Number no. 3 which came to be called the Juneteenth Order. One of my grandmother's childhood friends often shares the story that her grandfather used to tell her the oral history that it was not a piece of paper that freed the enslaved people of Texas, it was the men with the guns. These were the Union soldiers, many of them United States colored troops that showed up and told the plantation owners and the enslavers, you have to stop, these people are free. There are a couple of misconceptions about the Juneteenth order that Sam Collins would like to correct. First, while General Granger gets the credit for emancipating slaves in Texas, he did not actually write the order. One of his staff officers did, and it was never read publicly, despite the current reenactments in town. Second, the order contains the soaring language, all slaves are free, and it states they now have absolute equality with their former masters. But later, the last two sentences advised the freedmen to remain at their present homes and, and work for wages. So uh, you're free, but don't go anywhere. Despite the original patronizing language, June 19 became Emancipation Day in Texas. And over the decades, it's been adopted by African-Americans throughout the land. 
Here on the island, Juneteenth remains an intensely local celebration. Welcome to Galveston, Texas, the birthplace of Juneteenth. Last Tuesday, Avenue L Missionary Baptist Church kicked off a week packed with parades, picnics, gospel music, and freedom tours. But it wasn't always so, says Sharon Baptiste Gillens, a genealogist who is BOI, as they say, born on the island. She was one of the speakers at the church event. But I have to tell you that when I uh, was growing up here, Juneteenth was not a subject that we learned in school. It was not in any school book. We celebrated Juneteenth in the family. Gillen sat down for an interview later. She says when she went away to Howard University in Washington, D.C. in 1969, the Juneteenth celebrations were larger and more public there than they'd been in Galveston. It was around 1979 when Texas declared a Juneteenth state holiday that Galveston began celebrating it in a big way. Now that it's a national holiday, just like MLK Day, Gillens cringes at the Juneteenth party supplies on display in stores. Consistent with the American culture, it's already being commercialized. We're going to see things like the Juneteenth half-off sale. What's considered over the top? Last month, Walmart withdrew its Celebration Edition Juneteenth ice cream and apologized. For Gillens, along with local pride, comes a dose of wistfulness. We have been celebrating it for so long, and now it's national, and we don't, we don't quite own it like we used to. What black Galvestonians would like to see is an acknowledgement of their firsts on the island, the oldest black Baptist church and the oldest AME church in Texas the first public high school for black Americans in Texas, the home of Jack Johnson, the legendary Galveston giant who became boxing's first African-American world heavyweight champion. The list goes on. The summer camp at Fanfare Lutheran Music Academy is in full swing. The director of the academy is June Collins Pulliam, whose family has been in Galveston since 1865. Her great-great-grandparents, Horace and Emily Skull, were enslaved to a family named Skull on nearby Bolivar Peninsula. My great-great-grandparents and their young children were directly impacted because with this announcement of General Order Number 3, they were then freed and able to make lives for themselves here in Galveston. As a freedman, Horace Skull became a skilled and sought-after carpenter he built his own house and the houses of other emancipated people in Galveston. The Skull name is a foundational family in Galveston. The surname is etched in church cornerstones and written in school faculty rosters. Pulliam's great-grandfather, R.A. Skull, was the first African-American from Galveston to get a teaching degree. He went to Wilberforce University, returned to the island, and taught at a segregated school for 52 years. Juneteenth, she says, has come to signify so much to black Americans. But, you know, even more so, I think, to those of us who are right here in Galveston, where it happened and for whom it's very personal. It's, it's something I treasure, something I'm um, just glad that, it's, that now the world recognizes it. For a long time, visitors have flocked to this languid barrier island to splash in the warm waters of the Gulf to take in the graceful 19th century architecture, to eat oysters and stroll on the seawall. With the new federal holiday, the city hopes it will also become a must-visit site of essential American history, 
Again, Juneteenth Ambassador Sam Collins. So you can read about Juneteenth, you can watch a documentary about Juneteenth, but if you really want to be immersed in the story, you have to visit Galveston, Texas, and the sites associated with the events of that day, June 19th, 1865. John Burnett, NPR News, Galveston, Texas. Teachers have dealt with a lot this past school year. There were protests over mask mandates and critical race theory, then in-person learning during COVID surges, and this spring, a deadly school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Many educators are at a breaking point. This year has been tough. I have thought many times, not even do I want to do this because I do, but can I continue doing this? Three teachers reflect on the past year and the future on our daily afternoon news podcast, Consider This. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, the Texas State Republican Party convention over the weekend, which saw it officially adopt a position that rejects the certified results of the 2020 elections. That's coming up. Forecast says a mix of sun and clouds tonight with temperatures dropping to the lower 50s. Right now, 77 degrees in Boston at 429. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital nine years in a row. BostonChildrens.org slash answers. And the ICA with a place for me, celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant figurative paintings. ICABoston.org. Lee Pelton, President and CEO of the Boston Foundation. We've chosen to underwrite on WBUR as an effective way to raise awareness about racial equity in our state's racial wealth gap because equity is not a zero-sum game. Research suggests that closing the racial wealth gap in Massachusetts could raise our state's GDP by an estimated $25 billion over the next five years. And we believe this will benefit every single one of us. For more information, go to tbf.org slash civicleadership. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden says he's considering a federal holiday on the gasoline tax, which could save around 18 cents a gallon. Nearly all of that goes toward highway and transit projects, but there's pressure to suspend it as the war in Ukraine has created a chokehold on energy supplies globally. AAA says the average price for regular gas is just under $5 a gallon. In Germany, the government says it will increase the burning of coal to make up for a reduction in Russian gas deliveries. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports. Germany's economy minister Robert Habeck says his country will need to reduce its gas consumption and burn more coal in order to help fill gas storage facilities for next winter. Germany is heavily reliant on Russian gas to power homes and heavy industry, but has managed to reduce its imports from 55 to 35 percent since the war in Ukraine began. 
Last week, Russian supplier Gazprom cut flows of gas to Germany, blaming the German firm Siemens, which it said had delayed the return of turbines needing repairs. Siemens said in a statement that it was impossible to return the equipment to Russia because they were being repaired in Canada and were being held back by sanctions. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. Once a day marked mainly in black communities across the nation, Juneteenth is now the newest federal holiday, declared so by President Biden last year. Vice President Kamala Harris told youngsters at the African American History Museum in Washington today. Let this be a day that is a day to celebrate the principle of freedom, but to speak about it honestly and accurately. Juneteenth commemorates the day in 1865 that black slaves in Galveston, Texas, were informed that they had been freed two years earlier by President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Wall Street was closed for the Juneteenth holiday today. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Pediatricians in Massachusetts are gearing up to start administering COVID vaccines this week to children under the age of five. Federal regulators signed off on the vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. Pediatrician and infectious disease specialist Christina Hermos is urging parents to vaccinate their now-eligible kids. She says even though COVID is generally more mild in children, 400 kids under the age of five have died from COVID across the country. And even though that's a small number compared to adults, I think it's important to realize it's far more deadly than the flu, um, which we know is quite a deadly virus. Parents will have to look for vaccines at doctor's offices and vaccine clinics, though. Retail pharmacies are not vaccinating infants and young toddlers. Meantime, some public schools in Massachusetts are offering vaccine clinics for those who are a bit older. Framingham Public Schools are hosting a vaccine clinic tomorrow from 3.30 to 6.30 p.m. That's for anyone five and older. It's part of the state's mobile vaccine program. Several Massachusetts communities are using grants to support swimming lessons for kids and adults as summer gets into full swing. Five Massachusetts cities and towns got full funding earlier this year from the USA Swimming Foundation. That money went to the YMCA organizations in Holyoke, Lawrence, Beverly, Attleboro, and Newton. It comes as Massachusetts has seen high numbers of drownings the past two years. A ban on some single-use plastic in Northampton won't take effect until this fall. The city council voted last week to postpone the ban from the start of next month to the end of October, the second time the ban's been postponed. The ban applies to items like takeout containers and styrofoam. It also puts more restrictions on the use of plastic checkout bags at retail stores. A top player for the New England Revolution saying so long to fans and teammates. The Revs say goalkeeper Matt Turner made his final appearance last night. He's off to play for the English soccer club Arsenal FC. It's 434. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness Edition. It's summer of love at citysidesubaru.com. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight. Lows in the mid-50s should be mostly sunny skies tomorrow with highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 75 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of a Lyme probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, 
C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. About 5,000 Texas Republicans came together in Houston this weekend to make decisions about their party's priorities, and some of their positions are striking. The platform declares homosexuality, quote, an abnormal lifestyle choice. It endorses abolishing the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And the Texas GOP officially holds the false view that President Biden, quote, was not legitimately elected. Texas Tribune editor-in-chief Sewell Chan was reporting at the convention. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you, Ari. There are 275 planks in this platform, and many are noteworthy. Besides the, one I, the ones I mentioned, there's one that would require Texas students to, quote, learn about the humanity of the pre-born child. Another would remove the legislature's power to regulate guns. These were not part of the state party platform in 2018 or 2020. So why has the party moved so far to the right on so many of these issues? Well, one thing that we've noticed is that the party has actually been emboldened since the 2020 election. Uh, although President Trump lost that election, uh, obviously, you know, his narrative of a stolen election has continued to be very, very powerful. There was a sense in 2018 and even in 2020 uh, when the party uh, last formed its platform that they had to moderate a little bit to meet the center given that Texas Democrats had made some surprising gains in the 2018 midterm elections. But with uh, Biden seen as very unpopular and with uh, the Republicans seen as being in a strong position for this year's midterms, the party has felt really emboldened to uh, appease uh, the, the far right. The party controls the House, Senate, Governor's Mansion and every statewide office in Texas. So how much of a real world impact could these extreme declarations have? Well, that's it. We have to remember that a platform is not the same as the legislative priorities. You know, the Texas Republicans have actually want, made so, had, have had so many victories on voting, uh, abortion rights, um, redistricting, that, you know, some observers are like, you know, what more could they hope for? And so we have to keep in mind that some of the platform is, you know, again, throwing kind of red meat. Um, and not not so much specific legislative language. You know, that said, if you zoom out, you know, the platform would take us back to an America that's very different from the one today. It would include repealing the federal income tax, um, you know, not having U.S. senators directly elected, but rather, you know, elected by state legislatures, and uh, and even not having directly elected state officials, but having a kind of state electoral college that would choose the governor and other officers. People at the convention also booed one of their state's most powerful Republicans, Senator John Cornyn. What happened? Well, it's very striking. I mean, Senator Cornyn, of course, is a George W. Bush-era Republican in the news a lot for being part of this uh, group of 10 Republican senators, you know, open to a bipartisan framework on gun safety. Um, he uh, was booed on Friday quite loudly. Uh, he tried over many heckles to kind of actually explain what's in the bipartisan framework and talk about what he would not agree to, which includes restricting the rights of current gun owners. But uh, people weren't having it. Just in our last 30 seconds or so, was there much pushback to some of the more extreme positions like the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen? Well, there was some. There was uh, pushback against the homosexuality provision. Um, I think, you know, delegates I talked to, frankly, there was a bit of an eye roll, like, you know, as if, you know, we're going to say the election was illegitimate, but that's not really an actionable item. So that's important to keep in mind, too, although, of course, the position itself is fairly extreme. That's Sewell Chan, editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Ari.
A tooth returns to the Democratic Republic of Congo this week, bringing some closure to a gruesome chapter of European colonialism. Before we explain the significance of this tooth, we want to warn you the tale includes violence and murder. This small bit of bone and its shining golden crown are all that remain of Congo's first democratically elected prime minister, Patrice Lumumba. He took office when Congo became independent from Belgium in 1960. But just a few months later, he was taken hostage, tortured, and executed, his body dissolved in acid. A Belgian police officer took the remaining tooth as a memento back to his country. In a ceremony today, Belgium's prime minister returned the tooth to Lumumba's family. Georges Onzongola Antalaja is a Congolese historian who participated in the independence movement led by Lumumba. He also serves as Congo's representative to the UN. And he says Lumumba still holds deep importance for Congolese people today. Patrice Lumumba was a charismatic leader and a person who could really mobilize people to fight for independence. He created the first all-Congolese political party and was a person who was very much committed to improving the livelihood of Congolese people. We celebrate January 17th is Lumumba Day, so he's very well known. What was it like for you to fight for independence as part of his movement in the late 1950s? Well, I was a young boy in high school, and we were all very, very excited by uh, the struggle for independence. And to hear leaders like Lumumba, who were really speaking what most people thought about and who were not shy to say the truth in terms of the colonial oppression we went through. So it was a wonderful event. Let's listen to some of what his daughter, Juliana, said at today's ceremony in Belgium. Père. She's saying, Father, how did you die? We don't know. When did you die? We don't know. Where were you assassinated? We don't know that either. And so tell us what we do know about why Lumumba was assassinated. Because the West did not like him. President Eisenhower of the United States gave order to the CIA to assassinate him at the meeting of the National Security Council on August 18, 1960, by the simple expression, can't we get rid of that guy? But Allen Dulles, the CIA, both understood exactly what the president meant. What was their fundamental objection to him? Basically, was a nationalist who wanted to use Congolese resources for the well-being and development of Congolese people. As opposed to for the exploitation and use of the West. Exactly. Belgium's colonization of Congo was brutal, and a parliamentary inquiry found the Belgian government was morally responsible for the assassination of Lumumba. The Belgian prime minister and royal family have expressed regret but stopped short of a full apology. What do you make of that? Well, I would personally, I'm not speaking for the government, speaking for myself, I would prefer that the Belgian government owes up to its political responsibility in the killing of Lumumba. He was sent to Lubumbashi by the government in Kinshasa on the request of the Belgians, and he was killed by a Belgian assassination squad. So Belgium has a responsibility in the killing of Lumumba and they ought to owe up to that responsibility. Now, I said that the return of his tooth to DRC brings some closure to this chapter of history. How much closure is it, really? 
For the family, it's one thing that we have a place where they can go. Also for the Congolese people, we have a mausoleum where this tooth is going to be laid to rest. And this would be a very, very good thing in terms of having a place of remembrance, a place where Congolese can go and honor Lumumba. That's historian and Congolese representative to the UN, Georges Nzongola Talaja. Thank you for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. After 33 years, Cream is coming back. That's Cream, the music publication which calls itself America's only rock and roll magazine. After fits and starts, Cream is returning as a digital magazine, and in the fall, it'll be a quarterly in print. NPR's Danny Hensel has the story of a Detroit institution. Something was in the water in Detroit in 1969. Bands like the Stooges and Alice Cooper and MC5 helped rock hurdle into something darker and harder. And Cream Magazine was there to cover the scene, from garage rock to glam to punk. I think the thing about Cream was it was really this community of outsiders. Jan Uhelski was a reporter at Cream in its early days and now serves as editor emeritus. I started at Cream in 1970, the same day Lester Bangs did. We both walked in that door approximately the same time. Lester Bangs was among Cream's most famous writers. Philip Seymour Hoffman played him in Almost Famous. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. I know. Even when I thought I was, I knew I wasn't. Because we are uncool. Okay, maybe only in the movie, but in real life, Cream definitely was cool. Like when Bangs brought his typewriter on stage to write a review of the Jay Giles band in real time, and then he smashed the typewriter. Or like when Jan Uhelski reported on Kiss by donning the famous black and white makeup and playing with them. Uhelski says that kind of high-concept journalism is what made Cream distinct. We're very clear in our mission, which is to tell the truth, which is to show them from the inside out, to, to show the human aspect, to drag them down from Valhalla if we have to, to put them up in Valhalla if they deserve it. Also on the staff, legends like Griel Marcus, Robert Criscow, and Cameron Crowe. They covered rock worldwide, featuring Lou Reed and Led Zeppelin. We got to meet our heroes for better or worse. The magazine folded in 1989 for financial reasons. And after that, the rights changed hands a number of times. And I've spent the better part of my adult life putting those rights back together. That's J.J. Kramer, the chairman of Cream. It's a title he's held for a long time. My father founded Cream back in 1969. And when he passed away in 1981, he actually left Cream to me and at the time, was four and a half years old and the chairman of my own rock and roll magazine. A couple of years back, Kramer made a well-received documentary about the magazine. And that to us was proof of concept that people still had a real affinity for this brand and for rock and roll. So he set about assembling a group of writers and editors to bring Cream back to life. They plan to keep the Detroit roots intact with a weekly column reporting on the city's music scene. The magazine will operate with a subscription model. That means no advertisers, something that pleases editor emeritus Jan Uhelski. 
Supremes always told the truth and just damn the consequences. I mean, that was probably our biggest fights with our publisher is that we always told the truth and he kept going, but the advertisers, but the advertisers. Well, this time, there are no advertisers. So if we told the truth before, get ready. <laughs> We're really telling the truth now. That truth is coming in a glossy magazine with its gritty and grimy heart still intact. Danny Hensel, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, Israel's Prime Minister moves to dissolve uh, Parliament next week and hold early elections. Also, how drag performer Pablo Vitar uses her platform to fight for equality in her native Brazil. That's coming up in the next 10 minutes. Remember, tomorrow, the House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol building is scheduled to hold its next public hearing. You can hear NPR's live special coverage of it here on WBUR starting at 1 o'clock. In the forecast, it'll be a mix of sun and clouds today. Temperatures dropping to the lower 50s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. Highs should be in the mid-70s. And Wednesday, a sunny start with clouds building later in the afternoon. Highs in the low 70s. Right now, 71 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the new engineering design workshop at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS. Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge, powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. And Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with their part-time MBA. Apply by June 24th for scholarship consideration. Babson.edu slash part-time. Allison Felix is the most decorated U.S. track and field athlete in history. She's also a mother. In track and field, the culture around pregnancy was silence. How Allison Felix is dedicating her last professional running season to fellow athlete moms and the challenges of childcare. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow starting at 5 on WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. Israeli voters are heading to the polls again. In a joint statement released today, Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and Foreign Minister Yair Lapid say they have agreed to hold a vote next week to dissolve parliament and hold early elections, quote, after exhausting the efforts to stabilize the coalition. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Tel Aviv. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Ari. You must be having a sense of deja vu right now. You have reported on many elections in Israel. What happened this time? That's right. I mean, this was the most diverse Israeli governing coalition in history. It lasted just about a year, and it just could not hold together. Um, This was a very unlikely partnership of right-wing religious Jewish nationalists. There were left-wing lawmakers, pro-Palestinian lawmakers. There was a secular party headed by a gay politician and a conservative Muslim party that ran on an anti-LGBTQ platform. So, They stuck together because they didn't want Benjamin Netanyahu uh, to stay in office, but they didn't really agree on much else. 
And in recent months, some of Naftali Bennett's right-wing allies withdrew their support for this coalition. The final straw was actually about one of Israel's most controversial topics, um, settlers in the occupied West Bank. There were not enough votes to renew some legal protections for settlers, um, rights that Palestinians don't have. These legal rights have to be renewed every few years, and they expire in just 10 days. And so on TV today, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said this. He said, if these rights aren't renewed for settlers, Israel will endure heavy security damage and chaos that he could not allow. So he's stepping down, parliament dissolves, and these settler protections will be frozen in place. As you know, this is the fifth Israeli election in just over three years. I'm thinking of that Einstein quote about doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. What does this say about Israeli politics right now? I mean, I think that's very apt. It resurrects Israel's political crisis. The country is polarized. And Benjamin Netanyahu plays a huge role here. He has a strong base, but he faces corruption charges. And we saw again and again in, in uh, elections, he doesn't have enough support to form a government, but neither does the opposition. The big question is, can Netanyahu return to power? He's going to try. He has framed the failure of this government on its partnership with an Arab party. He calls it terror supporters, which is a slur. And so I think a major question in these elections are going to be, will Arab-Jewish political partnership and even more equality for Arab citizens be possible in the future? And meanwhile, President Biden is scheduled to visit next month. Is that going to go forward? And can anything be accomplished under these circumstances? The U.S. Embassy says their working assumption is that the trip is still going forward. Um, Israel does have some hopes for this trip. They hope that Israel and the U.S. can build an alliance with Arab countries to confront Iran. Uh, but you know what? If uh, President Biden does come to Israel as planned, he'll just be meeting a different prime minister, the future prime minister, Yair Lapid. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv reporting on another Israeli election. Thank you, Daniel. You're welcome. Yesterday in Sao Paulo, Brazil, thousands went out to celebrate the city's pride parade for the first time in two years. Pride is a celebration that embraces everyone, but in Sao Paulo, one person stole the show. Pablo Vitar is one of Brazil's biggest and brightest pop artists. She's also a political rabble-rouser, a queer icon unafraid of challenging the government's treatment of LGBTQ people in Brazil. In April, NPR's Michael Levitt caught up with Vitar backstage before a concert here in Washington, D.C. It's hard to overstate the excitement in the meet-and-greet line at Pablo Vitar's show. I'm bedazzled, really. I have no words, actually. <laughs> I get so starstruck. She's my hero. She helped me come out. You know, she's she's just everything to me. And that admiration goes both ways. I almost cried, too, because I think it's very personal, you know. These people are my my angels. I love so much when he comes to me and share with me all the passion. It makes me feel alive. When we sit down to chat, Vitar is midway through her show prep. She's in full makeup and hair but wearing a set of comfy pre-show sweats. For Vitar, the process of changing from person to performer is a bigger undertaking than it is for most pop stars. And that's because Pablo Vitar is also a drag queen. She goes by she, her, when in drag, but otherwise accepts any pronoun. That transformation is crucial, not just for her performance. It's where she gets her confidence. She says she's normally shy, but then... In the moment when I start my makeup, 
when I put on my wig and I feel the vibrations, I feel more stronger. I feel not fear. I feel brave. I feel my personality change. But she still thinks of herself as a singer first. And you can hear why. Since 2015, Vitar has released four full-length albums, collaborated with A-list musicians like Diplo and Lady Gaga, and now tours all over the world. Her musical style is pop, through and through, but it has a distinctly Brazilian flavor to it. Like the song Amor de Que, Que being short for the Portuguese slang term Kenga, it's about having a lot of love, too much love for just one person. Kenga is like, you know, how can I say? Like you kiss everybody and make love with everybody, but you don't lie to anyone, you know? You tell the people, okay, I'm with you, but I am like to be free and I like to kiss other guys, other girls. And this is me and Kenga. But it's not all about romance. Vitar's also become something of a political figure in Brazil, speaking out against discrimination and injustice. I'm a human being, and I know the struggles of my country, of my community. She's even tangled with Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro. In March, on stage at a festival, she donned the flag of his political opponent and shouted, Get out, Bolsonaro. In response, the Brazilian president filed a lawsuit against the festival, claiming that Vitar and others were spreading propaganda. But she seems undeterred. I lose my, my voice, my platform for, you know, try to change something. And I see we have so many changes, but it's not the end. Soon, we hear the stage crew setting up. It's almost showtime. Thank you, I want to prepare myself. Go, go, go. Thank you. And with two air kisses, she steals away back to her dressing room to complete her transformation. Michael Levitt, NPR News, Washington. Have you ever felt like, like not enough? Have you ever broken down? Could I get up? Me, I got bad days. Gets a little tough. But I got a secret, babe. But this Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at progressivecommercial.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation.
This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiaris. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, we'll hear from the organizers of a steampunk-slash-history festival in Lincoln, Nebraska, focus, focused on honoring the Juneteenth holiday. That and more coming up next hour here on WBUR. Forecast says partly cloudy tonight, lows dropping to the mid-50s. Should be mostly sunny tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 71 degrees in Boston at 459. This is WBUR. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Supreme Court scheduled to release another round of opinions tomorrow, including possibly its long-awaited decision on the future of Roe v. Wade. It's Monday, June 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, what happens if the court overturns Roe as it is expected to do and the legal battles that could set up? Couldn't you argue religious discrimination or something? I'm pretty sure that Judaism straight up mandates an abortion if the mother's life is in danger. So what would happen in a lawsuit like that? Also this hour, Democrats in some states start buying ads supporting far-right candidates on the Republican side in the hopes of facing them in a general election. And authorities warn major water cuts could be necessary next year as the Colorado River shrinks. It's 501 First, this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden spoke with reporters today on a variety of topics, ranging from the rising price of gasoline and a possible extension of a moratorium on student loan payments to the war in Ukraine. The president, who was spending the Juneteenth holiday at his vacation home in Delaware, also saying he thinks a bipartisan group of lawmakers working on gun control measures is closer to agreement. Though he noted during a pause as he walked along the beach, potential sticking points remain. I'm confident that they've, that they've done, that there's a serious, serious negotiation that's very close to coming to fruition. It depends on whether or not a particular Republican has the courage to stay with what you're, I'm sorry. Um, but look, I'm also very proud of some of the states. Biden has said that what separate Senate negotiators have come up with will likely be short of what he wanted, such as a ban on assault-style weapons and other sales restrictions. The bipartisan group has been scrambling to reach agreement ahead of a two-week recess that begins Friday. Witnesses say more than 200 civilians have been killed in western Ethiopia by a rebel group. NPR's Ader Peralta has more. According to a witness who spoke to NPR via phone, fighters from the Oromo Liberation Army attacked the village of Silsa in the Gimbi district on Saturday. Mohamed Kamal says he was farming, he heard gunfire, and when he came back to the village, he saw the rebels shooting indiscriminately. He lost three family members. He says one family lost 21, so his loss is insignificant. The Oromo Liberation Army says the civilians were killed by the Ethiopian military. The government severely restricts the movements of journalists, making independent verification difficult. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Addis Ababa.
Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen speaking in Toronto today said if countries begin putting in place a global minimum tax rate for businesses, those countries with a lower rate could find themselves losing out on revenues. Yellen noting that 106 countries have agreed to a global pact to ensure companies pay a minimum tax rate of 15%. Federal Reserve Board Chair Jerome Powell faced questions from lawmakers on Capitol Hill this week. His appearance comes just days after the Fed raised rates in an attempt to drive down soaring inflation. Here's NPR's David Gura. Since the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by three-quarters of a percentage point, Fed Chair Jerome Powell has said he and his colleagues are acutely focused on returning inflation to their 2% objective. Right now, inflation is much higher. Prices are rising at their fastest pace in more than four decades. Powell will be on Capitol Hill on Wednesday and Thursday. It's a shortened trading week because of the Juneteenth holiday. FedEx and CarMax will report quarterly earnings, and there will be new data on the housing market as mortgage rates continue to climb. David Gura, NPR News, New York. U.S. financial markets are closed today. Stocks were higher in Europe. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The MBTA is using bonuses to try and recruit potential employees to alleviate a shortage of subway dispatchers. The shortage has led to weekday service cuts on the red, orange, and blue lines. The T says workers who fill dispatcher jobs could pick up bonuses of $10,000. A T spokesperson says there have been no issues as the service cuts took effect today and says that's thanks in part to ridership remaining well below pre-pandemic levels. And a reminder that you are not free of delays if you take the Green Line. Today marks the first of a 12-day shutdown on part of the Green Line's B branch. Crews are upgrading the tracks and installing an anti-collision system. Shuttle buses will replace trains between Kenmore Square and Boston College. The American Red Cross is holding a series of blood drives around Massachusetts in honor of the Juneteenth holiday. WBUR's Josie Guarino reports the goal is to raise awareness and increase much-needed blood donations from more diverse donors. The Red Cross in Massachusetts is specifically looking for black residents to donate blood. It's to help with sickle cell anemia, a genetic disease that primarily affects people of African, Mediterranean, and Middle Eastern descent. Kelly Eisner is Director of Communications at the American Red Cross of Massachusetts. They might have to have blood transfusions every three or four weeks. Um, And over time, the more transfusions you have, the more it has to be as close a match in all aspects of DNA as possible. Eisner says the need for blood is greater than ever. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. And for a list of available blood drives and to sign up to donate, go to redcrossblood.org. State officials in New Hampshire are urging people going hiking in the White Mountains to prepare themselves and check the weather before departing. A Massachusetts man died at a hospital this weekend after being rescued in extreme weather from a trail near Mount Washington. Another three hikers from Rhode Island were rescued Saturday in the White Mountains after becoming lost on the trail. State authorities say one man has died and another was injured in a boating incident near Worcester. The two men were thrown from their boat on Saturday on Lake Quinsigamond. Dive teams recovered the 31-year-old victim, who was pronounced dead at the scene. The 26-year-old victim was taken to a hospital. In the forecast, it'll be increasing clouds with a chance of showers overnight, lows dropping to the lower 60s. Right now, 70 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Every day, over dinner tables, on the bus, in group chats across the country, Americans are wondering what happens if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. With the leaked draft opinion making this possibility seem like a real likelihood, we wanted to take the time to hear from you, from members of the NPR audience, about the questions you wish experts could answer about abortion access and reproductive rights. And we have two experts here with us now, Kiara Bridges, law professor at UC Berkeley. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And NPR national correspondent Sarah McCammon, who covers abortion policy. Hey, Sarah. I'm Mary Louise. All right, let's dive right in with questions. Um, the first one has to do with trigger bans. As I understand it, more than a dozen states have trigger bans, laws that would kick in that would ban abortion if Roe were to be overturned. So let's start with this question. It comes from Maureen Riley from Queensbury, New York. Are there any other health conditions besides abortion that are left up to the states to regulate? Sarah, you take that one. Well, sure. I mean, states pass regulations about all sorts of things, um, health issues included sometimes. One legal expert I spoke to about this pointed to medical marijuana laws, for example. So cannabis, of course, is still illegal under federal law, but a growing number of states in recent years have passed legislation allowing access to marijuana under various circumstances, mm -hmm. in some cases only for medicinal purposes, but that varies from state to state. Another example would be physician-assisted suicide. It's illegal in most states, but about 11 states have laws now allowing some form of medically-assisted euthanasia, according to the advocacy group Compassion and Choices. And even with abortion, states currently have some authority to regulate that procedure, especially earlier in pregnancy. For example, they can prohibit the use of telehealth to dispense abortion pills, and some states do. Mm -hmm. There have also been efforts in some more liberal states to relax some of the health restrictions around abortion, for example, to expand the types of providers who can offer the procedure to include nurse practitioners or physician assistants. And historically, some efforts at the state level to regulate abortion have been deemed to violate the Constitution by imposing what's considered an undue burden, and that's an important standard in previous abortion rights precedent, on a patient's ability to access care. For example, the Supreme Court has struck down rules requiring doctors who provide abortions to have hospital admitting privileges. But this case before the court right now appears likely to give states much more room to regulate and even ban abortion. Um, a question regarding the crossing of state lines, because I know one thing groups that support abortion rights are, are stealing themselves for is if these bans go into effect, that people may cross state lines in greater numbers to try to access abortion care. Um, here's a question about that. This is from Wohenia Jow in Columbus, Ohio. Do states truly have the power to restrict the movement of residents if they try to travel out of state or out of the country to gain access to reproductive rights that their own states have denied? Kiara Burgess, what do you say? Sure. Um, there is definitely precedent for states having the power to restrict um, their residents' movement. Um, the best precedent that I can think of is uh, the facts um, behind Loving versus Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, Loving versus Virginia is the famous um, case in which the court struck down anti-miscegenation laws that prohibited um, white folks from marrying non-white folks. And the facts behind that case are that the Lovings um, traveled out of Virginia to D.C. in order to engage in their interracial marriage. They had to travel because interracial marriage was illegal in Virginia. When they returned, they were arrested 
because they had violated the Marriage Evasion Act, which prohibited the traveling of outside of the state to engage in this illegal activity, which was interracial marriage. So we certainly have precedent for states having the authority to restrict travel. Um, but I should also note that we also have precedent that there might exist a fundamental right to travel that is protected in the Constitution. There are a couple of cases from the 1980s in which a majority of the court suggested that there is a fundamental right to travel um, that states cannot uh, infringe through various sort of techniques. So there, there, there might be some sort of restriction on the ability of states to restrict travel. All right. One more on trigger bans before we move on. There was a lot of interest in this. This comes from Emily Baker in Port Townsend, Washington, and she's asking about this from the flip side. So there are a lot of states that have trigger laws in place. And is there a similar set of trigger response plans ready and waiting by pro-abortion rights advocacy groups? Sarah. So as we heard, about 13 states have laws in place that are designed to take effect very quickly to ban abortion within hours or days or, or weeks. And some of those require action from state officials like attorneys general to certify them and implement them. So abortion rights opponents are certainly gearing up for this. I've talked to some who say they're reaching out to state officials, asking them to be ready to do that. But to Emily's question, abortion rights supporters are also getting ready. Uh, I, I talked to Julie Rickleman, who's the senior director of litigation at the Center for Reproductive Rights, which argued the Dobbs case before the Supreme Court. And she says states like Texas have multiple laws on the books that will create a lot of confusion initially. And the language of each of those laws varies, and it will not be entirely clear immediately what will be the law in that state, which of those bans will be in force, and that will at the end of the day, be worked out through litigation. And Rickleman predicts what she describes as legal chaos in the aftermath of this decision as states try to interpret what the decision means for their laws. So reproductive rights groups are getting ready to, to challenge some of these decisions. Um, and we're likely to see legal battles in both state and federal court. Uh, these groups say some state constitutions may also have protections for abortion rights that they can call upon if Roe v. Wade falls. Let's step back, go big picture. Uh, Kira, I'm going to throw this one to you. This comes from Janet Crones in Frederick, Maryland. I am curious to know why President Biden can't just sign an executive order authorizing abortion. Um, could he just sign an executive order authorizing abortion? Could he do that legally? Unfortunately, that's just not the way federalism works. Um, so the president um, has certain powers that are delegated to him in the Constitution, to that office in the Constitution, and those powers relate to sort of discrete areas of life, like national security, like starting wars, <laughs> like immigration. Um, so it's outside of the of the president's authority to legis or or to to issue orders around you know reproductive rights and health. Uh, next question from Elise Manning in Edwardsville, Illinois, and this is about a possible religious exemption to abortion bans. Couldn't you argue religious discrimination or something? I'm pretty sure that Judaism straight up mandates an abortion if the mother's life is in danger. So what would happen in a lawsuit like that? Uh, Sarah McCammon, what does your reporting have to tell us about this? Right. I did a story on this recently and with the caveat that within any religion, there's a range of views you can find. 
but scholars I spoke to told me that Judaism and also Islam generally place a lot of emphasis on protecting the well-being of a person who's pregnant. And I interviewed a range of Christian scholars and thinkers as well, Roman Catholics in particular, and many conservative Protestants believe that life begins at conception, that a person has all the rights of any human at that point. But there are many Christians, of course, who take a different view and would emphasize the importance of bodily autonomy for people who are pregnant. Um, you know, in the oral arguments in the Dobbs case last year, Justice Sonia Sotomayor made this argument as well. She asked a question essentially suggesting that the view that life begins at conception is a religious view. And I should add, this argument is already being made. Just recently, a synagogue in Florida filed a lawsuit challenging that state's 15-week abortion ban on religious freedom grounds. A synagogue in Boynton Beach, Florida, is arguing that the ban infringes on the religious freedom of Jewish people and imposes the views of another faith on people who practice Judaism. So it's certainly an interesting argument and one to follow as it unfolds in cases like that. I'm going to land us on a question from Denver, Colorado. This comes from Kian McIntosh, who is curious about the future ramifications of a decision that overturns Roe, if it were to look anything like the leaked draft. Could the argument used in the draft opinion for overturning Roe v. Wade be used to justify overturning other previous decisions in the future? Specifically, does the logic used hint at future rulings related to birth control access, gay marriage, and other issues that would impact women in the LGBTQ plus community. Kiara Bridges, could this end up being about way more than abortion? My answer is absolutely. Um, and that's true for two reasons. One, um, Justice Alito is skeptical of substantive due process. And substantive due process is this doctrine that says that there are certain rights that are that are not spelled out in the Constitution, but that are protected um, through the due process clause. And so a lot of the rights that are important to marginalized people, um, reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, marriage rights, et cetera, all of those rights have been a function of substantive due process. The second reason is because because of the, the legal methodology, the interpretive methodology that Justice Alito uses in that opinion, it's originalism. And originalism looks to see what they were thinking back um, at the, the founding of the nation, at the drafting of the Constitution. What did they have in mind? What were the rights that were important to them, right? This, what was the original public meaning of the Constitution? I can assure you that folks who were considered part of the polity during that time were not marginalized people. They did not have the capacity for pregnancy. They were not women. They were not people of color. They did not have disabilities. Um, and so the things that are important to those groups simply would not be contemplated by the Constitution if we have a majority of justices who subscribe to originalism. And so we should be very afraid that we're going to be seeing um, interpretations of the Constitution that eliminate all of the rights that marginalized people need in order to be full members of the body politic. UC Berkeley law professor Kiara Bridges and NPR national correspondent Sarah McCammon answering your questions. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Just ahead on All Things Considered, the thousands of letters due to be published next week from the lyricist for musicals like Showboat, 
Oklahoma and the Sound of Music. That's coming up. In business news, Maine is reporting a record year for oyster harvests. The state's Department of Marine Resources reports it produced more than 6 million pounds last year, a more than 50% increase. It continues an ongoing trend that's seen the Maine oyster industry nearly quintuple its sales over the last decade. On Wall Street, markets were closed in observance of the Juneteenth holiday. Today, they will reopen tomorrow morning. And Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. Right now, it's 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Arlington Chamber and Mass Office of Travel and Tourism. Enjoy Arlington's cultural district with shopping, dining, theaters, and more. Details at visitarlingtonma.org. And Boston Children's Hospital thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital nine years in a row. bostonchildrens.org slash answers. In sports, Red Sox will start a three-game series with the Detroit Tigers at Fenway tonight. Josh Winkowski getting the start for the Sox at 7.10 p.m. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight, lows dropping to the mid-50s. Mostly sunny skies tomorrow, mid-70s, and Wednesday more sunshine, highs in the low 70s. Right now, 70 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from the Levelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. Lyricist Oscar Hammerstein helped revolutionize the American musical arguably twice first with Showboat in 1927, and then with Oklahoma, which he wrote with Richard Rogers in 1943. When Hammerstein wasn't writing lyrics, he was still writing. So it has nothing to do with a flower drum song, but this is the letter I have to write, so will you... He recorded this for his secretary. I'll take it while I think of it and be off my mind. This is to Arthur B. Spingarn. Hammerstein's papers are now housed at the Library of Congress, and critic Bob Mondello says the publishing on Friday of a volume called The Letters of Oscar Hammerstein II will make his correspondence widely available for the first time. Shortly after sending the 1,000-page manuscript to the publisher, editor Mark Eden Horowitz, a senior music specialist at the Library of Congress, hosted an evening at the library called As Ever, Oscar. He had, he told the audience, read through virtually all of the 25,000 letters in the Oscar Hammerstein collection. And ended up transcribing over 4,600 of them. Those are the best ones. The best of the best that made it into the volume showcase not just the creative Hammerstein, but Hammerstein the businessman, the mentor, and occasional the corrector, as when a magazine asked permission to quote the lyrics of Old Man River. Hammerstein's response, read for the audience by actor Harry Winter. You may tell the Nash Air Flight magazine that it is okay to use the words fish gotta swim, birds gotta fly in the context they submitted. You may also inform them that these words are not from Old Man River. They are from a song called Can't Help Loving That Man. In Old Man River, there is nothing about either swimming or flying. 
It is mostly rolling. He would later have to correct even his own lawyer about this particular song. In 1937, a Hollywood studio planned a film to be titled Old Man River, and the lawyer said he'd investigate, but he didn't think he could stop it. Since Hammerstein hadn't originated the phrase, he'd just used an old expression that was in the public domain. Hammerstein took exception to that. The expression was originated by me, and if it was an old one and in the public domain, the public seemed blandly unconscious of it until 1926. <laughs> when the song was introduced. I had never heard the expression before, and uh, neither had you. Not that Hammerstein was always right. After a backer's audition for Carousel, he got a note from a potential investor who was also a farmer, praising his work, but saying if accuracy mattered, he might want to fact check this. The sheep aren't sleeping anymore. All the rams that chase the ewe sheep are determined there'll be new sheep, and the ewe sheep aren't even keeping score. In June? He raised sheep, he said, and they mate just once a year in late autumn, hence spring lamb. Hammerstein replied, a bit sheepishly, I was delighted with the parts of your letter praising my work and thrown into consternation by the unwelcome news about the eccentrically frigid behavior of ewes in June. <laughs> I have since checked your statement and found it to be true. It looks very much as if in the interest of scientific honesty, I shall have to abandon the verse dealing with sheep. For the record, he did not. Also for the record, the reason we have this full exchange is that Hammerstein kept not just the letters sent to him, but carbon copies of his replies, detailed missives to directors who wanted to make changes after opening night, to movie censors who wanted to clean up carousel lyrics, to other authors who asked him for advice, and to the many folks who suggested source material they thought Rogers and Hammerstein should musicalize. In the late 1940s and early 50s, they were offered Pygmalion and the once and future king. They passed on both, happily for the team of Lerner and Lowe, who turned them into My Fair Lady and Camelot. They also passed on Don Quixote, Peter Pan, and Mary Poppins, and their lawyer actually optioned Tevye's daughters before they decided they weren't the right fit for the material. In fairness, during those years, they wrote South Pacific, State Fair, The King and I, Cinderella, Flower Drum Song, and The Sound of Music, so it's not as if they didn't have some decent ideas themselves. They also had to bat away movie stars who wanted to be in their musicals. Imagine if they'd acquiesced the hills are alive when Doris Day wanted this part. With the sound of music. Hammerstein noted that the movie version was still years away, by which time Day would be in her mid-40s, hardly the near schoolgirl Maria they had in mind. Worked out pretty well with a singer still in her 20s. The hills are alive with the sound of Years before, Hammerstein had also rebuffed Jimmy Cagney's offer to produce the movie of Oklahoma if they'd let him play Curly. As for public requests to use their work, he had to be careful, as he wrote to Paul T. Hurt Jr. in February 1952. I cannot give you permission to use the album of South Pacific in the way that you describe, he wrote. Once we open the gates, our copyright will be generally abused all over the world. I suggest, however, that if you forget that you wrote me this letter, I will forget that I turned you down. Then you might go ahead and do it, and once it was done, I am quite sure I would not try to put you and the Cub Scouts in jail.
Theater wasn't Hammerstein's only interest. Many of his letters concern his involvement in the civil rights movement. He was on the board of the NAACP. Following World War II, he worked feverishly to promote peace in articles, letters, and speeches. Today, our title to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is heavily mortgaged. Foreclosure can come without notice with the dropping of one bomb in the right place, and it doesn't have to fall right on your head either. It can miss you by 20 miles and still kill you. He wrote this in 1952. Now you would think that all men and women in the world would be uniting to defend themselves against this condition. You would think they would be applying all their energies and ingenuities to conceiving ways to stop it. His conception, articulated in earnest correspondence with the likes of General Douglas MacArthur, was that there ought to be a world power that could enforce sanctions when governments wage war. And if that seems to speak directly to us in this moment, imagine Editor Horowitz's surprise. I felt like Oscar had actually written to me. When he read a 1942 letter from Hammerstein to composer Jerome Kern. Knowing that you file your letters and I file copies of mine, it is quite possible that in a couple of thousand years some archaeologist might dig up either the original or the copy and seeing the date will be completely puzzled that during the Great War so long a letter could be written without some reference to it. It will be hard enough for him to understand how people could be so dumb as to wage wars like this, but once in them, how could they possibly be interested in such things as I discussed so seriously in this letter? Well, Mr. Archaeologist, that's the way we were in those days. Thanks to the Library of Congress and archaeologist, or rather editor, Mark Eden Horowitz, it hasn't taken 2,000 years to discover the erudite, sometimes irascible letters of Oscar Hammerstein, or to understand why their author took so many things so seriously. But yeah, the puzzlement about war... Is a puzzlement. Sure is. I'm Bob Mondello. When I was a boy, world was better spot. What was so was so, what was not was not. Now I am a man, world have changed a lot. Something's nearly so. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, why Democrats are buying ads to support far-right candidates in Republican primaries around the country in the hopes of then facing them in the general election. Also, we'll hear from the organizers of a Juneteenth festival in Lincoln, Nebraska, with a combination of history and modern steampunk. Both of those stories and more coming up here on WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be a mix of sun and clouds tonight, temperatures dropping to the lower 50s. Mostly sunny skies tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s, and Wednesday a sunny start. Clouds later on, highs in the low 70s. Right now, 70 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Works from artists Kahinde Wiley, Georgia O'Keeffe, Vincent Van Gogh, Rembrandt, and more. Free on Sundays. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Trust among Supreme Court justices is in a fragile state after the recent leak of a draft opinion. And when you lose that trust, especially in the institution that I'm in, it changes the institution fundamentally. It's like kind of an infidelity. I'm Kimberly Atkins Store, the Supreme Court of Mistrust. That's on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The January 6th committee resumes public hearings tomorrow. The panel is slated to hear testimony from two top Republican election officials in Georgia. Stephen Fowler of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports the panel is expected to focus on then-President Donald Trump's attempts to pressure officials in key battleground states to help him overturn the 2020 election results. The officials are Brad Raffensperger, who's the Secretary of State, and his top deputy, Gabriel Sterling. They'll talk about one of former President Trump's brazen efforts to overturn the 2020 election that he lost. Now, Raffensperger famously rebuffed Trump's pressure to, quote, find enough votes to reverse his narrow defeat, and Sterling was a frequent figure on televised news conferences debunking false claims of fraud and fellow Republicans' attacks on election workers. Stephen Fowler of Georgia Public Broadcasting. More than two months after employees at an Amazon warehouse on Staten Island voted to organize, the company has yet to recognize the union. NPR's Andrea Shu reports. In a hearing that could last weeks, if not months, Amazon is making the case that the regional office of the National Labor Relations Board that oversaw the election favored the union and facilitated its win. The company also charges that the union acted inappropriately, threatening and harassing employees who didn't support the union drive. The Amazon labor union calls the objections baseless. Amazon has said it will be calling dozens and dozens of witnesses and presenting hundreds of tweets as part of its evidence. The hearing is being conducted over Zoom, adding complications. The opening day saw a lot of haggling over procedures. A ruling on the case could still be months away. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Wall Street was closed for the Juneteenth holiday. Globally, European benchmarks were higher today. Most Asian markets retreated. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. COVID vaccines for the youngest children are starting to arrive in Massachusetts. Some of the first doses were delivered this afternoon to a pediatric center. The rollout will focus on doctor's offices rather than retail pharmacies. Lloyd Fisher is president of the state chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. We do know that there are some logistical challenges, especially to small offices with administering this vaccine. It is a little bit more complicated than sort of other routine childhood vaccines. Fisher says one of those challenges is the COVID vaccine arriving in 10-dose vials, unlike most childhood vaccines, which come in single-dose vials. Fisher says doctors want to be careful not to waste doses. Flights carrying hundreds of thousands of pounds of baby formula are expected to land in Boston this week. The first of the flights from London arrived in Boston today, and the formula will be available in stores and online. Flights are also bringing the formula to Detroit amid a national shortage in baby formula. Meantime, there appear to be some lingering problems at Logan for regular passengers. More than 100 flights coming into or out of Boston have been delayed. More than two dozen have been canceled. Airlines have attributed delays and cancellations from over the weekend to staffing issues and a spate of bad weather. Dartmouth College is doing away with loans as part of its undergraduate financial aid. Instead, school officials say they're using $80 million from a years-long fundraising campaign to create scholarship grants. Dartmouth says it'll help students graduate with less debt. The new approach starts this summer and applies to undergrads from families making less than $125,000 a year. Several other Ivy League schools, including Harvard, have enacted a no-loan policy. 
In the forecast, it will be partly cloudy skies tonight. Lows dropping to the mid-50s. Should be mostly sunny skies tomorrow. Highs in the mid-70s. Wednesday, more sunshine with clouds building later in the day. Highs will be in the low 70s. Thursday, mostly cloudy. Chance of showers for much of the day. Highs in the low 70s again. And Friday should be a mix of sun and clouds with highs right in the upper 70s. Right now, 69 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Lummelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. In Republican primary contests this election year, some candidates are getting a boost from an unexpected place, Democrats. And Republican Chris Matisse, a true conservative, 100% pro-Trump and proud. That ad, which ran in California, was paid for by... House Majority PAC is responsible for the content of this ad. The House Majority PAC is affiliated with Democratic House Leader Nancy Pelosi. The strategy playing out in many states goes like this. Democrats give a boost to Republican primary candidates with extreme views, hoping they will be less competitive in a general election than a more moderate GOP candidate. It's a risky move with potential to backfire. Former Senator Claire McCaskill is a Democrat who has talked about how she used this tactic to win her race in Missouri in 2012. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you, Ari. Let's go back a decade. You said that in the last two weeks of that 2012 Republican primary, you spent more money to boost Tea Party candidate Todd Aiken than he spent on his entire primary campaign. What were you thinking as you spent millions of dollars to boost a conservative Republican candidate running for Senate in Missouri? Well, every race is different. In my situation, there were three viable candidates, and Todd Aiken was kind of the weirdest one. I knew he might say some weird things if he were nominated, and so he had less money. So we took a poll, figured out what Republican voters would really like about him, and we spent millions of dollars promoting him by telling Missourians all the things that the Republican primary voters liked about him, but that general election independent voters didn't like about him. That strategy worked. And you say it was based on an assessment that he was, in your words, the weirdest candidate, and that he might say some weird things. Four years later... A candidate who said a lot of weird things was elected president. And I think many Democrats thought Donald Trump might have been the weakest candidate in a crowded primary field. So there are clear risks here. Do people who try a strategy like this, are they playing with fire? Well, there certainly are risks. And it's certainly different today than it was a decade ago. And let me point out the major difference. When Todd Aiken said what I expected him to say, something that was off the wall in the general election. Unlike today, the Republican leadership all came together and rejected him. We have watched the leadership in the Republican Party hide under their desk at the amazing, horrible things that Donald Trump would do. So it's different today. I'm not sure you could count on Republican leaders to stand up 
and reject a candidate that said things that were abhorrent to most voters. Are there candidates whose positions are so extreme, whether it's endorsing QAnon or opposing American democracy, propagating the false narrative that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, that, that you think just the risk of getting them one step closer to federal office is simply too dangerous? I think it depends on the district. If there is confidence that the voters in that district are going to reject that extremism, then I think elevating them may be a smart strategy. But it is a big mistake to do it in a district where a Trump candidate has as good or better chance of getting elected than a more moderate one. Yeah, I'm just thinking confidence is never proof, right? A person can be sure that Hillary Clinton's going to win the presidency and still be surprised the morning after the election. Point well taken. We were all surprised by Donald Trump. But these are tough races, and I do not regret for a minute what we did uh, a decade ago. And at the end of the day, if you look at some of the crazies that like to get attention, their voting record is not that different than the leadership of the Republican Party. So it isn't as if they're going to be able to do things a lot differently than what they're currently doing in Washington in the Republican Party. So far this year, this tactic has had mixed results. It worked in a Pennsylvania governor's race. It didn't in a California congressional contest. Next week, there are primaries in Colorado and Illinois, where the same dynamic is playing out. So what advice, besides tailor it to your district, to your state, what advice do you have for Democrats who are trying this maneuver? Well, um, first of all, I certainly would recommend that you spend some time figuring out what the Republicans voting in the primary actually support. And it would be nice if you also had a handle on what the independent voters in your area, your district or your state, don't like. And if those two match up, that's what you should be talking about, because the beauty of the ad we ran against Todd Aiken a decade ago was the very things that made him attractive to many people in the Republican primary made him unelectable with independent voters in the general. Is this tactic always ethical? I mean, whether or not it works, is it an honest way to inform voters who are making important decisions about who gets to create laws? Well, um, listen, I'm somebody who thinks dark money is evil, but I, I, I do think that it is ethical as long as the voters know. I mean, in my instance, I said, I'm Claire McCaskill and I approve this message. And there was nothing in that ad that I didn't believe. I did believe Todd Aiken was too conservative for Missouri. As it turned out, then Missouri agreed with me. That's former Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri. Thank you for speaking with us. You bet. While Juneteenth may be a relatively new federal holiday, its roots run deep. A group in Nebraska is celebrating the holiday with a twist of science fiction known as steampunk. The organizers mixed the two in a unique event. Here's William Padmore of Nebraska Public Media News. Steampunk, a genre of fiction where advanced steam-based technology replaces modern tech, is probably the last thing you might think of when it comes to Juneteenth. But not for Jade Rogers. She created the House of Afros, Capes and Curls to represent people like her, nerds of color. The comic conventions, the comic book shops, all of those places, no one in my community was targeting or trying to partner with or reaching out to Black organizations that I knew of. So for Juneteenth, Rogers, who teaches history at local community colleges, decided to combine her two joys, history and all things geek. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hi. Hi. Welcome, welcome, welcome. 
At the inaugural steampunk tea party, dozens of people showed up, most of them in cosplay. Robert Anderson was dressed head to toe in his best steampunk attire with skulls, buckles, and more straps than necessary. He says he felt excluded from certain aspects of nerd culture growing up due to his race, but events like this make him feel wanted. If this is something that people do, I'm a people. I can do it. I matter, I count, and if it's good for you, it's good for me. When you want to have fun with something, you have fun with something. At the North Omaha Music and Arts Academy, a steady stream of people eventually packed the venue, whether listening to performances, sampling an assortment of colorful teas and cakes, solving a murder mystery featuring great black minds of the Victorian era, or using the opportunity to network, everyone seemed to be having fun, just like Rogers wanted. I'm a little over, not overwhelmed, I'm happy. I think that the feeling here is one of joy, and it just shows that we need more of this. Rogers says she's not sure if she'll put on another steampunk tea party next year, but says she will do something to bring people together on this special day honoring Juneteenth. For NPR News, I'm William Padmore in Lincoln. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Water managers in the western U.S. are facing a monumental task. Federal officials have given seven states an August deadline to figure out a plan to conserve an unprecedented amount of water. Without major cutbacks in water use, the nation's two largest reservoirs are in danger of reaching critically low levels. We're joined now by Alex Hager, who covers water for member station KUNC in Colorado. Hey there. Hey, good to be with you. How much water are we talking about here? Well, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation is asking states to conserve two to four million acre feet of water. So for some context, the entire state of Colorado uses just over two million acre feet every year. The backdrop here is more than two decades of drought in the Colorado River Basin. Climate scientists say that is not likely to turn around anytime soon. And 40 million people across the Southwest rely on water from that system, and the supply is just getting stretched thin. If the drought has been going on for two decades, why is there this sudden urgent deadline? Well, the current rules for how to share the river's water expire in 2026, and we've been expecting serious negotiations in time for that deadline. But climate change has been making the West much drier, much more quickly than a lot of people expected, and basically made it so those decisions couldn't wait until 2026. We have seen a whole patchwork of different water conservation plans in the past, and even some of the bigger cutbacks, those were a quarter or less of the amount that we're talking about this summer. Hmm. How are water managers in these seven states reacting to the call? Yeah, right now the mood is pretty shell-shocked. Uh, this is Colby Pellegrino with the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which supplies Las Vegas. If you're using Colorado River water in any way, you should be internalizing how you can help solve the problem. There's a lot of tension between states about who should give up water, and this is a serious test of whether they can come together and actually come up with a plan to sacrifice some. So two to four million acre feet of water is just a huge amount. Where can states find that level of conservation? Yeah, the short answer is that it is probably going to have to come from agriculture. About three quarters of the water from the Colorado River goes to farming and ranching from Colorado all the way down to Mexico. 
And cities have actually done a lot to conserve water over the years. Even if you turned off the spigot to Phoenix, Vegas, Los Angeles, you'd still have a supply and demand issue. There's just not that much water left to conserve in cities, which is why farms and ranches have a target on their backs. And so what happens if they don't meet the deadline in 60 days? Yeah, that is that is one of the really big questions here. If they can't, the federal government says they're going to come in and do it for them. And some people think that is what's going to happen. Uh, Sarah Porter is a water policy researcher at Arizona State University. I expect that there will just have to be action by the Department of Interior, as was essentially threatened. It is really hard to get any water user to volunteer their share for conservation. So either way, there's going to be a lot of conversations about who gets less and when. Uh, So this summer is going to be a tense one. And the science shows how much climate change is likely to keep this region dry. So it really is a question of how to divide that shrinking supply going forward. That's reporter Alex Hager of member station KUNC in Colorado. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, journalist Linda Villarosa on how COVID-19 has exposed long-standing racial disparities in the health care system. And tomorrow, the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol building holds its next public hearing. You can hear live special coverage from NPR of that hearing here on WBUR beginning right at 1 o'clock tomorrow. It's 548. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with a part-time MBA from Babson. Rank the top Northeast graduate school for entrepreneurship by the Princeton Review and Entrepreneur magazine. Attend online or in person. Apply by June 24th for scholarship consideration for fall 2022. Babson.edu part-time. Members, stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be a mix of sun and clouds tonight, temperatures dropping to the lower 50s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 70 degrees in Boston at 549. The Air Force has been tracking and surveying these drone crews for years. They know that 20% of them have clinically high levels of emotional distress. They know that witnessing civilian casualties can make you eight times more likely to have PTSD. They know all of this stuff. They just don't know what to do about it. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Don Foot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at House or donfoot.com, beauty on time. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. Life expectancy in the U.S. has always been different for white people and black people. And since the start of the pandemic, that difference has widened. 
Linda Villarosa is familiar with these disparities. She's a journalist who covers race and health, and she's also had her own experiences dealing with racism in healthcare. When she visited her father in the hospital while he was sick with colon cancer, Villarosa says she was shocked at what she found. He was shackled basically to the bed. He had restraints. And I said, Mom, what is going on? And she said, your father is really sick and they're treating him like, and she said the N-word. NPR's Karen Grigsby-Bates from our Code Switch podcast talked to Villarosa about how COVID exposed racial disparities in all aspects of the healthcare system. I heard half a dozen stories of people who died because they went to the ER and they said, I can't breathe, I'm not feeling well, I, you know, I'm wondering if I have it. And they were sent back home, basically, and then they ended up dead. Is that still happening? Yes, I think it's still happening. I think because we brought some awareness, it's better. But the basic underlying problem hasn't been solved. I am brought to the case of Dr. Susan Moore, who was a physician in Indiana. She went to the hospital with COVID. She is a doctor. So the very system that she was educated in, that she worked in, didn't help her and in fact may have harmed her. So she said, I have COVID and she said, I'm in a lot of pain. And um, she was treated as though she was drug seeking when she asked for pain relief. I was crushed. He made me feel like I was a drug addict and he knew I was a physician. And what really struck me is throughout that recording, her refrain was, this is how black people get killed. This is how black people get killed. So she left the hospital and she died. We've been told that before vaccines, COVID recovery was determined largely by a number of factors that are described as comorbidities. In the beginning, doctors were saying, well, why aren't you taking better care of yourself? I'm wondering if there's been some nuance now applied to thinking about that. I think that right now there is more of a textured understanding, but I think still the basic problem is to me threefold. One is the problem of the healthcare system itself. Even though there's plenty of resources, there's not enough empathy and there's discrimination baked into it. The second thing is we live in segregated communities. We live in places that were harmed a century ago partly through redlining, partly through um, contract buying in Chicago, where my mother was from, and nobody could really own a home. So these communities are ones that aren't that healthful. In other words, the air might be dirty because they are near a polluting facility. The other thing is the idea of weathering. So weathering is the idea that fighting against discrimination day in, day out, ages you prematurely. Each time an incident happens, it fires up the systems of your body, including your blood pressure, your cortisol, um, your stress hormones, and even your pulse rate. So if that happens over and over and over, as it does in the case of people who are Black in this country, it weathers the body the way a storm might weather a home, knocks the shutters off, chips the paint. Mm. If we are weathered, which is a kind of premature aging, then it's not a shock why we would have worse COVID outcomes at younger ages. Another place we see racial disparities is in maternal and infant mortality rates. You actually followed a Black woman, Simone Landrum, into the delivery room in New Orleans, and you described, beyond the numbers, an issue with how she was treated. Can you tell us about that? One of the things that struck 
both the doula, Latona Giwa, and I, at the beginning was they interviewed her multiple times and they said, how many children do you have? And she said, I have two children. And then I lost a baby last year. And then they said, oh, how, when, when was the demise? And they kept calling the baby she lost the demise. And that baby was a little girl who she named Harmony. And um, when she died, Simone herself almost died. And the labor wasn't going great. Her, the current baby was at risk. If you know that someone has been traumatized the year before and things aren't going great right now, you should not be calling the baby the demise. She was treated badly, so badly, in front of me and in front of the doula. The three of us were the only Black people in the room in New Orleans. And I saw them, you know, not listening to her, arguing with her, but also treating her very unkindly, given that their job is to care for her. Wow. Are there big studies that pop into your mind immediately when I ask about studies that indicate that bias is a problem? So they looked at amputations for diabetes. Even when everything was equal, Black people were still more likely to get a foot amputated. And so I don't think individual doctors go in being racist. However, somebody made a decision to too often cut off the foot of a Black person. And that was the one that really hit me. I just kept picturing that, picturing someone made that decision. COVID shown a pretty glaring spotlight on the just radical inequities along racial lines that exist still in this country. Is there any hope that that illumination has maybe been the starting point for starting to correct some of those inequities? I think there has been movement. I did a lot of interviewing of medical students, and many of them in this generation were politicized by Black Lives Matter when they were in undergraduate college. So then they went to medical school and they brought that same kind of activism and that spirit with them. And it's very exciting to see groups of um, medical students pushing back against parts of their education that they say, well, this is old. I don't want to be a doctor like this. I want to confront my biases and not enter the field with them. So, you know, there, there are bits of hope, but I think we have to just keep this issue on the forefront and not shy away from it. That was Linda Villarosa, author of Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism in American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. She spoke with NPR's Karen Grigsby-Bates. A longer version of the conversation can be heard on the Code Switch podcast. The federal government doesn't offer Pell Grants to help people in prison pay for college. It hasn't since 1994 and won't again until next year. So there aren't many colleges that offer degrees to incarcerated people, but there are a few. One student's story tomorrow on Morning Edition. If you're not by the radio, try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies. At fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive info sent online can lead to identity theft. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to deliver solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, working to build a future where people and nature thrive. Nature.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, a closer look at Virginia's 7th Congressional District, which will be a key battleground in this fall's midterm elections, plus marking the history of Juneteenth in Texas. That's all coming up. Forecast says partly cloudy tonight, lows dropping to the mid-50s. Mostly sunny tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s, and Wednesday more sunshine with clouds building later in the day, highs in the low 70s. Right now, 70 degrees in Boston at 559. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. One man we spoke to said that he lost three family members, but another family in his village had lost 21. Reports that hundreds of civilians had been killed in Ethiopia. It is Monday, June 20th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, what we know about the attack in Ethiopia's Oromia region with details of what happened still hard to verify. Also, the push in Galveston, Texas to transform into a focus of black tourism with the opening of Juneteenth historic exhibits. If you really wanna be immersed in the story, you have to visit Galveston, Texas and the sites associated with the events of that day. And at 6.30 on Marketplace, whether rising interest rates are keeping would-be buyers out of the housing market. It's 6.01 first, and this hour's news. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Hearings examining the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol will resume tomorrow. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports the House Select Committee is expected to focus on how then-President Donald Trump and his allies pressured officials in key battleground states as they sought to overturn the 2020 election. Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is expected to testify before the committee on Tuesday. Lawmakers will likely focus on a phone call he had with Trump in January of 2021. During the call, Trump pressured Raffensperger and at times berated him for resisting efforts to help Trump find the votes necessary for him to win Georgia. The panel will also hear testimony from Deputy Secretary of State Gabe Sterling. NPR's Windsor Johnston. A major wildfire burning in northern Arizona is now half contained. It has consumed more than 26,000 acres so far. Remember station reporter Ryan Heinches says the pipeline fire's growth is slowed since it ignited more than a week ago. 
The pipeline fire continues to burn directly north of Flagstaff, partially on the steep slopes of the San Francisco peaks. Its explosive initial growth was driven by heavy winds, but fire activity has decreased as wet weather and aggressive firefighting operations have boosted containment numbers. Last week, thousands of evacuation orders were lifted for residents outside the city. Showers and thunderstorms are in the forecast for the coming days, which will help firefighters, but rain also means the chance of flooding for thousands of residents who live beneath the pipeline fire, as well as the burn areas of other recent wildfires. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff. Russia has threatened retaliation against Lithuania after the Baltic state halted the rail transport of goods under EU sanctions, the enclave of Kaliningrad. NPR's Rob Smits reports. Russia's foreign ministry summoned Lithuania's charge d'affaires in Moscow to demand an immediate cancellation of the restrictions or face actions to defend Russia's national interests. Lithuania controls the only overland rail route linking the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad with mainland Russia. Last week, Lithuania began limiting the export of coal, metals, electronics, and other sanctioned goods over President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The restrictions affected more than half of all Russian rail supplies to Kaliningrad. The Kremlin called the action a blockade and said it would get around it by shipping supplies to Kaliningrad by a ferry from St. Petersburg while it decides how to respond. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. The nation's youngest kids are getting their first opportunity to get a COVID-19 shot in some locations. That's after the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention signed off on the use of the vaccine for kids younger than the age of five over the weekend. That cleared the last regulatory hurdle standing in the way of administering the vaccine to that age group. U.S. financial markets are closed for the Juneteenth holiday. Those stocks were up in Europe today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Riders on the red, blue, and orange lines are dealing with day one of weekday service cuts. The cuts are happening because of a shortage of subway dispatchers, one of a handful of safety issues flagged by the Federal Transit Administration. Jared Johnson with the advocacy group Transit Matters says the bonuses are a great first step, but that the T may have a tough road ahead as it tries to hire. People looking for jobs have a lot more choice, a lot more options. So it's no longer sort of the old days where folks would just come to the T because when you have an agency that's careening from crisis to crisis and offering buyouts, that's not going to be the same sort of beacon that it used to be. Johnson says he hopes the T will partner with local community colleges to create pathways into the dispatcher ranks. Pediatricians in Massachusetts are gearing up to start administering COVID vaccines this week to children under the age of five. The first doses have already arrived in the state. Pediatrician and infectious disease specialist Christina Hermos is urging parents to vaccinate their now-eligible kids. She says even though COVID is generally more mild in children, 400 kids under the age of five have died from COVID across the country. And even though that's a small number compared to adults, I think it's important to realize it's far more deadly than the flu, um, which we know is quite a deadly virus. Parents will have to look for vaccines at doctor's offices and vaccine clinics. Retail pharmacies are not vaccinating infants and young toddlers. Meantime, some public schools in Massachusetts are offering vaccine clinics for those who are a bit older. Framingham Public Schools will host a vaccine clinic tomorrow from 3.30 to 6.30 p.m. It's for anyone five years old and up. Several Massachusetts communities are using grants to support swimming lessons for kids and adults as summer gets closer to full swing. Five Massachusetts cities and towns got funding earlier this year from the USA Swimming Foundation. That money went to the YMCA organizations in Holyoke, Lawrence, Beverly, Attleboro, and Newton. It comes as 
Massachusetts has seen high numbers of drownings the past two years. A ban on some single-use plastic in Northampton will not take effect until this fall. City Council voted last week to postpone the ban from the start of next month to the end of October, the second time the ban's been postponed. It applies to items like takeout containers and styrofoam. In the forecast, it'll be a mix of sun and clouds tonight. Temperatures in the lower 50s. Right now, 70 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO, working to improve patient outcomes and increase patient engagement with its Clinical Decisions Suite. Learn more at clinicaldecisions.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. Hundreds of people are reported dead after an attack on civilians in a rural part of Ethiopia. The prime minister has called the attack unacceptable and said restoring peace and security is his government's priority. Ethiopia has been fighting a civil war since late 2020. NPR's Africa correspondent Ader Peralta is in the capital, Addis Ababa. Hi, Ader. Hey, Ari. What more can you tell us about this massacre? I've been able to talk to two witnesses on the phone, and what they tell us is that fighters for the Oromo Liberation Army had been amassing in this region called Gimbi. And on Saturday morning, they started rampaging through small villages. One man we spoke to said that he lost three family members, but another family in his village had lost 21. So his pain, he said, was insignificant. Another man, Ahmed Abdallah, uh, told us that he was farming, and when he heard gunfire... Uh, He came back to his village. He saw rebels going house to house. He says they were rounding up uh, the ethnic Amharas who had settled in this mostly Oromo region. Let's listen. They surrounded the village. And they put the people 50 in one side, 30 or 26 on the other side, using a sniper. They had been executed though. He says in one mass grave, he helped bury 63 people, and out of those, 41 were kids under the age of 10. Um, The OLA, the rebels in this region, say that they did not do this. They say that civilians were killed by government soldiers who were dressed to look like rebels. Um, And we should note that I would be on my way to that village right now, but the government will not let me, so getting some ground truth on this is difficult. I guess the the big questionator is why. As we said, there has been a civil war raging for years, but this was a massacre of civilians, and it's not the first time this has happened. It's a lot of things. I mean, look, Ethiopia's longtime government collapsed in 2018, and since then we've seen government troops and armed groups in different parts of the country commit atrocities. Just this week, a video was circulated on social media that, according to the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, showed government troops and allied Amhara militias taking Oromo men off a truck and executing them on the side of the road. So the ethnic group that was attacked this weekend was attacking when that video was taken. Uh, The analyst I talked to say that what is happening in Ethiopia is that different groups, which are organized by ethnicity, have different dreams for what this country should look like, and no one has found a peaceful way to negotiate this. So instead, it's turned into unthinkable violence. The country has changed so quickly. Just a few years back, Ethiopia was relatively secure, economically prosperous. It was hailed as an African success story. Is the outlook right now as bleak as it seems from where we sit? 
I, I think it's pretty bleak. Uh, for more than a year and a half, you know, Ethiopia has been fighting a civil war in the northern part of the country. And just as a peace process for that started to take root, other insurgencies in the south and northwest seem to be heating up. And each one of those conflicts is complicated with deeply held historical grudges. So it's hard to see any easy way out of this cycle of violence for Ethiopia. NPR's Ada Peralta in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you, Ari. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is escalating his clash with the White House over unaccompanied migrant children who cross the southern border without their parents or guardians. This has been a growing focus for Republicans and right-wing media. They accuse the Biden administration of organizing secret migrant flights to communities around the country. But NPR's Joel Rose reports that rhetoric is often at odds with the facts. For years now, thousands of Central American children have crossed the U.S.-Mexico border alone. And the federal government has responded the same way, transporting them from the border to other parts of the country where they can be reunited with parents or placed in a network of shelters. This was normal, even routine, until suddenly it wasn't. The Biden administration has been secretly flying underage migrants to Florida and New York in the middle of the night. Pennsylvania is the latest state seeing an influx of ghost flights coming in the middle of the night. Fox News has devoted multiple segments to these so-called ghost flights. They don't want the American people to see what they're doing, which is interesting to me. What you just saw is illegal. That's a crime. That's why they're keeping it secret. To be clear, these flights are legal. In fact, the federal government is required to care for these children by law until they can be placed with a sponsor in the U.S., usually a parent or other relative. It's not secret, and it's not new. Jennifer Nagda is with the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights, a nonprofit that works closely with unaccompanied children. She says the rules about their treatment have been the same for years, spelled out most recently in a law that passed with broad bipartisan support in 2008. This is part of a process established under a bipartisan law intended to treat children just a little bit more like the children that they are. By the time former President Trump was elected, Republicans argued that the law was having unintended consequences, that human smugglers and cartels have learned to exploit it to get more kids into the country. Still, the law was reauthorized during the Trump administration. What has changed is that the number of unaccompanied children crossing the border reached an all-time high last year. And Nagda says so has the amount of fear-mongering about them. That's really just divorced from reality and from facts. Federal officials say that flights carrying migrant children happen at all hours and that they don't release information about the children on board to protect their privacy. Biden officials say all of this was the same during the Trump administration. Even the contractor operating the charter flights hasn't changed. But none of that has silenced the president's critics. There's no warning. It's just in the middle of the night. That's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at a press conference last Friday, standing behind a podium with a sign that read Biden's border crisis. DeSantis signed a law that blocks the state from doing business with air or bus carriers that bring undocumented immigrants to Florida, including unaccompanied children. What this bill does is it penalizes any of these contractors that the federal government is hiring to dump illegal aliens in our state. And so they will be ineligible for any tax contracts or anything like that. When DeSantis was asked how many companies might be affected, he didn't offer an answer, but conceded that it's, quote, difficult for the state to stop flights that are operated by federal contractors. 
Immigrant advocates suspect the real point of the law is to help DeSantis win re-election this fall and run for president in 2024. Jennifer Nagda says that leaves migrant children caught in the middle of a fight between Florida and the White House. It's really unconscionable to me that kids would be used as pawns in a political fight. There are no ghost flights, Nagda says, but the backlash is real. And she worries that the harm to migrant children could be too. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. The House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol plans to hold two more hearings this week. So how are those hearings landing with voters? Ben Pavier from member station VPM takes us to a swing district in Virginia where primary voters go to the polls tomorrow. Kimberly Berryman is a strategic grocery shopper. Her budget is tight and she goes to a few spots in Fredericksburg, Virginia to find the best deal. Doing it all in one shot because, you know, gas prices, you have to, you know, make... The whole trip count. Berryman lives in the countryside, far enough out that she puts a cooler in her trunk to keep her corn cold. For Berryman, it's worlds away from the January 6th hearing going on at the Capitol. I got other things to do. (laughs) I really do. I mean, I really don't pay attention to a lot of it, like I said. Berryman says she usually votes for Democrats. That includes this swing district's current representative, Abigail Spanberger. Berryman says the January 6th attack was shocking but she's more focused on rising bills and says Democrats aren't doing enough to fix it. I don't think so at all. <laughs> I'm really, I'm, like I said, I'm really disappointed because it's just so much that's going on and then, you know, it's like they're sweeping things under the rug. Berryman says she'd consider voting for a Republican if they address her concerns. I asked Spanberger how she would respond to voters like Berryman, who believe Democrats are too focused on January 6th at the expense of the economy. I would say that certainly I'm not that Democrat. It's not that Spanberger is ignoring January 6th. She was in the House chamber during the assault on the Capitol. She remembers watching the scene unfold from the gallery. Capitol police officers barricading up the door with benches and tables. And Spanberger believes the hearings are important for the health of the U.S. democracy. And ensuring that something like we saw on January 6th um, doesn't ever occur in the future. But the two-term Democrat says the hearings haven't stopped her from focusing on pocketbook issues. She sponsored legislation designed to prevent baby formula shortages and another to recruit more truckers to address supply chain issues. And she'd prefer to keep the focus there rather than on the last president or even the current one. Spamberger won't say whether she wants President Biden to run again. I'm focused on November 22 uh, and continuing to serve my constituents. The six Republicans vying to take on Spamberger have worked to pin her to Biden. Yesley Vega, a sheriff's deputy running for the GOP nomination, railed against the president and Spamberger to a crowd of a couple dozen Republicans in a gated community outside Fredericksburg. Tell me one thing that they've done good, aside from electing and converting more Republicans. (laughs) What have they done? Despite the moderate lean of the district, Vega and her five GOP competitors are aligning themselves with Donald Trump. She says Democrats have squandered Trump's legacy. They were handed the most securest border, a thriving economy. Another Republican in the field, Bryce Reeves, has made Trump a focus of his ads. President Trump showed us how to stand up for the principles and values that make America great. I'm ready to finish what he started. Most of the GOP candidates in the district have downplayed the January 6th attack. Some voters at Vega's event, like Deanne Marshall, say the hearings aren't fair. They're not showing the whole story, and they have no opposition. There's no true Republicans on that forum. None of the GOP candidates will say whether they would have voted to certify the 2020 election. And the winner of this seat will be in the chamber after the next presidential election. 
For some Democratic voters in the district, like Courtney DuBois, the January 6th hearings drive home the stakes. I believe it's important because everybody needs to know what's happening and what has happened and what we, the steps we can take to prevent this from happening again. But with so much else on voters' minds, Du Bois says she can only hope the hearings cut through the noise. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiaris. Coming up on All Things Considered, the effort in Galveston, Texas, to mark and tell the history of Juneteenth. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. In business news, Boston-based Bain & Company signing a deal to lease most of a long-planned Back Bay office building. The building's been in the planning stages for about 15 years, and the agreement is one of the largest for office space in the area since before the pandemic sent many workers home. The deal will give Bain about eight of the building's eventual nine stories in a 15-year lease once it's fully built in about three years. On Wall Street today, markets were closed on account of the federal Juneteenth holiday. They'll reopen tomorrow. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. Right now, it's 6.19. WBUR supporters include the MassArt Art Museum. Designing Motherhood explores the arc of human reproduction through art and design. Learn more at maam.massart.edu. Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research, manufacturing, and development at vrtx.com. And MassTLC, the region's leading technology industry group, and the power behind Boston Tech Jam and the Tech Top 50 Awards. More at masstlc.org. Forecast says it'll be partly cloudy tonight, lows in the mid-50s, should be mostly sunny skies tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 69 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Total Wine and More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Shoppers can explore over 8,000 wines, 2,500 beers, and 4,500 spirits. TotalWine.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. Today is the second observance of America's newest federal holiday, Juneteenth. We celebrate the day 157 years ago that a Union Army general came to the port city of Galveston in the District of Texas and posted an order to the citizenry including the words, All Slaves Are Free. That day was two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, an order that could not be enforced in the defiant South without Union troops. As NPR's John Burnett reports, today black Galvestonians are jubilant that the world is learning their story. A couple of months after Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse, 
Major General Gordon Granger sailed into Galveston to take command of all federal troops in the District of Texas. He came here to this spot in June of 1865. Galveston is the birthplace of Juneteenth. Here at the southwest corner of 22nd and Strand is where Gordon Granger set up his union headquarters. Sam Collins is unofficial ambassador of Juneteenth tourism. As he explains, the edifice occupied by the Union Army is long gone. Now it's a parking lot bounded by ocean-themed gift shops, an Irish pub, and a store that sells toe rings. Two and a half years before Granger arrived, President Abraham Lincoln had issued his Emancipation Proclamation that legally freed three and a half million African Americans enslaved in Confederate states. But it was here that federal troops issued and enforced General Order Number no. 3 which came to be called the Juneteenth Order. One of my grandmother's childhood friends often shares the story that her grandfather used to tell her the oral history that it was not a piece of paper that freed the enslaved people of Texas, it was the men with the guns. These were the Union soldiers, many of them United States colored troops that showed up and told the plantation owners and the enslavers, you have to stop, these people are free. There are a couple of misconceptions about the Juneteenth Order that Sam Collins would like to correct. First, while General Granger gets the credit for emancipating slaves in Texas, he did not actually write the order. One of his staff officers did, and it was never read publicly, despite the current reenactments in town. Second, the order contains the soaring language, all slaves are free, and it states they now have absolute equality with their former masters. But later, the last two sentences advised the freedmen to remain at their prison homes and, and work for wages. So uh, you're free, but don't go anywhere. Despite the original patronizing language, June 19 became Emancipation Day in Texas. And over the decades, it's been adopted by African-Americans throughout the land. Here on the island, Juneteenth remains an intensely local celebration. Welcome to Galveston, Texas, the birthplace of Juneteenth. Last Tuesday, Avenue L Missionary Baptist Church kicked off a week packed with parades, picnics, gospel music, and freedom tours. But it wasn't always so, says Sharon Baptiste Gillens, a genealogist who is BOI, as they say, born on the island. She was one of the speakers at the church event. But I have to tell you that when I uh, was growing up here, Juneteenth was not a subject that we learned in school. It was not in any school book. We celebrated Juneteenth in the family. Gillen sat down for an interview later. She says when she went away to Howard University in Washington, D.C. in 1969, the Juneteenth celebrations were larger and more public there than they'd been in Galveston. It was around 1979 when Texas declared a Juneteenth state holiday that Galveston began celebrating it in a big way. Now that it's a national holiday, just like MLK Day, Gillens cringes at the Juneteenth party supplies on display in stores. Consistent with the American culture, it's already being commercialized. We're going to see things like the Juneteenth half-off sale. What's considered over the top? Last month, Walmart withdrew its celebration edition Juneteenth ice cream and apologized. For Gillens, along with local pride, comes a dose of wistfulness. We have been celebrating it for so long, and now it's national, and we don't, we don't quite own it like we used to. What black Galvestonians would like to see is an acknowledgement of their firsts on the island, the oldest black Baptist church and the oldest AME church in Texas, 
the first public high school for black Americans in Texas, the home of Jack Johnson, the legendary Galveston giant who became boxing's first African-American world heavyweight champion. The list goes on. The summer camp at Fanfare Lutheran Music Academy is in full swing. The director of the academy is June Collins Pulliam, whose family has been in Galveston since 1865. Her great-great-grandparents, Horace and Emily Skull, were enslaved to a family named Skull on nearby Bolivar Peninsula. My great-great-grandparents and their young children were directly impacted because with this announcement of General Order Number 3, they were then freed and able to make lives for themselves here in Galveston. As a freedman, Horace Skull became a skilled and sought-after carpenter. He built his own house and the houses of other emancipated people in Galveston. The Skull name is a foundational family in Galveston. The surname is etched in church cornerstones and written in school faculty rosters. Pulliam's great-grandfather, R.A. Skull, was the first African-American from Galveston to get a teaching degree. He went to Wilberforce University, returned to the island, and taught at a segregated school for 52 years. Juneteenth, she says, has come to signify so much to black Americans. But, you know, even more so, I think, to those of us who are right here in Galveston, where it happened and for whom it's very personal. It's, it's something I treasure, something I'm um, just glad that, it's, that now the world recognizes it. For a long time, visitors have flocked to this languid barrier island to splash in the warm waters of the Gulf, to take in the graceful 19th century architecture, to eat oysters and stroll on the seawall. With the new federal holiday, the city hopes it will also become a must-visit site of essential American history. Again, Juneteenth Ambassador Sam Collins. So you can read about Juneteenth, you can watch a documentary about Juneteenth, but if you really want to be immersed in the story, you have to visit Galveston, Texas, and the sites associated with the events of that day, June 19th, 1865. John Burnett, NPR News, Galveston, Texas. Teachers have dealt with a lot this past school year. There were protests over mask mandates and critical race theory, then in-person learning during COVID surges, and this spring, a deadly school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Many educators are at a breaking point. This year has been tough. I have thought many times, not even do I want to do this because I do, but can I continue doing this? Three teachers reflect on the past year and the future on our daily afternoon news podcast, Consider This. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up next, it's Marketplace. Tonight, the skyrocketing costs of buying a home and whether that's keeping would-be buyers out of the housing market. 
That and more coming up here on WBUR. Forecast says a mix of sun and clouds tonight. Temperatures in the lower 50s. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny, though. Highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 70 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Farmers Markets. When traveling around Massachusetts, discover fresh farm stands, delicious farm-to-table restaurants, and popular farmers markets. Learn the best places to find the best food at eatlikealocalinma.org. Funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the new engineering design workshop at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS.